0: ted audio collective
1: got a business problem there's a ted talk for that stay updated on everything business on ted business a podcast hosted by columbia business school professor modupe akinola every week she'll introduce you to leaders with unique insights on work answering questions like how do four-day work weeks work to will a machine ever take my job? Get some surprising answers on Ted Business wherever you listen to podcasts. It's so All-Star
2: weekend in Los Angeles. I was a part of the All-Star team, a starter on the team, actually. This is NBA player DeMar DeRozan. And it had just been a tough couple of weeks leading into the All-Star weekend. And, you know, I was just looking forward to it, just looking at it like, I got a break. I can go back home. I can see my kids. I can see my family. Kind of just let my hair down a little bit and relax. Over that All Star
3: weekend in 2018, DeMar didn't get the calm and rest he expected.
2: Everybody was pulling at me, needing something, coming home and seeing yourself on the side of buildings. He felt overwhelmed and alone. Every ounce of emotion in a negative way you could, you could feel. I think I felt it in, in that moment. I hit a wall, and I just felt like I needed to get something off my chest. So one night, DeMar decided to share how he
3: was feeling, in a tweet. It was a lyric from the song Tomorrow by Kevin Gates. DeMar wrote, this depression get the best of me. NBA players don't typically talk about their mental health in the locker room, let alone in public. But here was DeMar telling the
2: whole world he was feeling depressed. And I tweeted that and I went to sleep and I woke up. <laughs> Have, I woke up to like, it was crazy. I just woke up to a bunch of mess. And that next morning we had media day and practice before the All-Star game. So I'm in front of all, of, all media having to answer to my tweet. <laughs> and, I, I, and I wasn't ready for it, but I didn't, you know, cause I didn't expect what to come next, but it was probably one of the greatest things that I did. And you know, to this day, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did it.
3: Finally sharing his depression gave DeMar a sense of relief and it also empowered him to focus on a bigger mission.
2: Breaking the stigma of mental health, depression, all these things that people go through, that we overlook, that could just really save people's lives, just to really have people feel like they're being seen. Damar started a
3: conversation about mental health in the NBA. What if that conversation happened in every workplace? I'm Adam Grant, and this is Work Life, my podcast with the TED Audio Collective. I'm an organizational psychologist. I study how to make work not suck. In this show, I take you inside the minds of fascinating people to rethink how we work, lead, and live. Today, what we get wrong about mental health at work and what we can do to start getting it right. Thanks to SAP for sponsoring this episode. Before the pandemic, about one in 10 Americans were experiencing symptoms of depression and anxiety. During COVID, the rate of mental illness quadrupled. Of course, clinical depression and anxiety often require professional help. But we've all felt sadness and stress, loneliness and languishing, anxiety about losing a job or our kids getting sick. And we've all had moments of feeling overwhelmed or disconnected from other people from our own values, or from hope about the future. These emotions affect us in our jobs, and people are finally starting to pay serious attention to mental health at work. Many people want to do something about it, but there are a lot of misconceptions. If we want to make real progress, we need to bust three big myths. The first myth is that leaders and high performers are somehow immune to struggling with mental health, like Damar, an NBA
2: All-Star. Especially being an athlete, you you viewed as the Terminator. You have no emotions. You have everything in the world. What is it to cry about? Like, that fear shows the denial you could be in from hiding from whatever it is you're going through.
3: Mental health challenges can affect anyone. Feeling dejected, stressed, or anxious doesn't mean you're weak.
2: Depression don't discriminate, you know. it attack anything and anybody.
3: Recognizing that anybody on a team can struggle with mental health problems can help to destigmatize them. It signals that being vulnerable doesn't prevent us from being strong leaders or strong performers. Which brings us to the second myth, that if you try hard enough, you can just turn off whatever's going on in your life when you get to work. Be professional. Whatever your personal issues are, check them at the office door. Newsflash, people aren't robots. Consider a study of call center employees. When they start the day upset, distressed, or anxious, their performance quality suffers. They have lower verbal fluency, more uh, fumbles, more um, uh, uh, like fillers, more awkward pauses, more vocal tics. And if they finish a call feeling upset, distressed, or anxious, they're less productive the rest of the day. Of course, some people learn to manage
2: those emotions unusually well. Some of my greatest performances in my careers came out when when I've been at my lowest. (laughs) Really? Yeah, that's what it was for me growing up, was a survival instinct mindset that I have of knowing that, you know, it's not a safe environment that you're in, but you got to make the best out of it, understand whatever you got to do. From the time you leave out the house, you got to make sure you walk back in the house. That trained me to withstand a lot of my dark thoughts and dark moments to be able to do whatever needs to be done.
3: But even if you're like Damar and you rise to the occasion in the moment, mental health challenges take a toll over time. Over a hundred studies have shown that when we have low psychological well-being or face depression or general anxiety, our job performance suffers. Which brings us to the third myth. Many people believe that whatever their mental health challenges are, they don't belong in the workplace. That it's a distraction, something leaders should try to keep out and employees should suppress. But when we don't address our emotional baggage, we bring it with us to work and spread it to other people. Research reveals that depression and anxiety can be contagious. Our coworkers pick up on it and it can affect their performance and well-being. So the known problem of presenteeism, you know, where employees show up to work sick and infect others, also applies to mental health. Mental health shows up in your workplace, whether it's welcome there or not. And not addressing it leaves people suffering in silence. DeMar knows from experience.
2: I fell into a a deep, darker place that this time it just went completely... Dark, you know, I couldn't see nothing, couldn't feel nothing.
3: What goes on in your brain when you're feeling like that?
2: You just become and feel clueless, feeling lost. Being around a bunch of people will feel like you're in the middle of the ocean in in a little kayak by yourself at times.
3: If he broke his leg or got the flu, his teammates would notice. Just like your coworkers would notice if you came to work in a cast or coughed and sniffled your way through a video call. But mental illness is often invisible, and DeMar made a brave choice not to conceal it. When he opened up about feeling depressed, it didn't damage his performance or drag his team down. It had a positive ripple effect across the league. When fellow NBA player Kevin Love had a panic attack during a game, he credited DeMar for giving him the courage to talk about what happened.
2: Just to see guys share their story was even more inspirational and motivating to me because we all got a story to tell. So to see guys speak about it and, and, and be more vulnerable—that's what it's about.
3: You said it felt like you were on a, a kayak alone in the ocean before you spoke up. Uh, after you got that off your chest, what was different?
2: Man, um, everything. You know, I, I, I remember being out to eat somewhere, and um, you know, an older older gentleman came up to me and said, you know, how my story changed his son's life because he was close to being suicidal. You know, and and to hear something like that, it gave me the chills because in that moment, I was doing it for my own selfish reason, expressing how I felt, but to see what it did and how it played out for other people and to hear a story like that, it's all about saving lives, you know, giving people hope and when you can have hope to lean on, that go a long way.
3: That's beautiful. And it's also the best response I've ever heard to shut up and dribble. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Being open about mental health, bringing it into his team, allowed important conversations to happen throughout DeMar's workplace.
2: You know, one of my closest friends in the NBA is Cal Laurie. And, you know, he had no know firsthand. It used to be some games where he knew what I was going through. And after the game, we we'll would sit next to each other in the locker room and sometimes he would put his hand on my shoulder and say, you know, um, you're the strongest person I've ever, ever been around. Like, I, I don't understand how you could just go out there and do what you just did and, you know, deal with reality two hours after you've been on the court.
3: And that ripple effect can happen in your team, whether you work with accountants or mechanics or call center staff. Any team that's trying to better support people needs to normalize struggle, to make it acceptable to face emotional challenges and to talk about them.
2: I've had a younger teammate, you know, and he, he opened up to me in a way that definitely helped, you know, but I felt like he wouldn't have did it if he didn't see me being vulnerable. It goes a long way because a lot of these young guys, we we all go through a lot of things because for me, I went from being an 18 year old at Compton High School to going to college for one year, not even a full year to being drafted to the NBA and thrown out there. (laughs) I had a bank account that my first check, I remember my bank thought it was fraud. Like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) getting so much money and it's like, what to do next. You got so many people trying to take advantage of you, tell you what's right. And that becomes a challenge because a lot of us are scared to ask for help.
3: Damar puts a lot of effort into creating a team culture that's open and accepting of mental health struggles. He wants new players to know they can share pain and suffering, just like he does.
2: It was always hard for me to talk to certain people because if I look at you and, and feel like you don't know what it is, what I come from, how, how do you expect me to open up fully? You know, I'm, I'm from Compton, California. Like I, I wasn't around, you know, white people until I was in college, you know. So how do you expect me to talk to this white older man that probably never been in the situation of hearing gunshots every night or being inside a house that was raided because they thought it was a drug house? You know, so many of those instances to where it's like, you know, I'm not I'm not going to talk about about this because I'm not sure if you want to judge me.
3: I don't want to make any predictions about your future careers, but if you were an owner or a GM or a head coach, how would you address mental health?
2: Same way I address um, nutrition, same way I address how to run a play, same way <laughs> I address how to be a professional. If you address what's mentally first, everything else will carry over physically emotionally to get the best out of that, that player. Like you may do something that to get all these guys together to open up to kind of get out their comfort zones to talk to each other. Just finding different ways to be able to lock in to make guys feel safe.
3: But that responsibility shouldn't fall to just one player or one employee. It's not enough to just have a few compassionate coworkers. We need to scale it and build compassionate organizations. More on that after the break. Okay, this is going to be a different kind of ad. I play a personal role in selecting the sponsors for this podcast because they all have interesting cultures of their own. Today, we're going inside the workplace at SAP.
0: Growing up in a Catholic school, you would think there wasn't a lot of bullying and fighting, but there was.
3: Meet Kristen Gentile.
0: And it was always me who would get involved and intervene at a very young age. People always came to me and they always say, like, you were our bodyguard.
3: Sadly, bodyguard has taken on a different meaning for Kristen in her adult life. In 2017, when Kristen was pregnant with her third son, she was diagnosed with breast cancer.
0: When the doctors decided to remove the lump, it turned out it was super aggressive and it had spread already through my lymph nodes. Let's get you on chemo, even though you're pregnant, immediately. And that was a really difficult, difficult time.
3: Kristen made it through 16 rounds of chemo and 36 rounds of radiation. But in 2019, she was diagnosed with stage 4 metastatic breast cancer.
0: I've had some really dark days where I wake up with aches and pains and it's hard to get out of bed. And I wonder, is that just my medication or is that the cancer just infiltrating my body? It's a really... Crazy way to live, but it also makes you look at the world through a completely different lens. Because on days when I wake up and I feel amazing, I'm like, okay, boys, let's go, let's play superheroes, let's do this, let's do that. It's a blast. My boys like to joke, they think I look like Wonder Woman because I have the dark hair.
3: Kristen's boys aren't the only ones who call her Wonder Woman.
0: My team in the HR department here at SAP really ran with the Wonder Woman theme. Every time I sat in that chemo chair, They would either be sending me memes or emails or they were doing really complicated dance routines because they know I love to dance. It was incredible that everybody rallied around me and really took this Wonder Woman persona and ran with it. And now some people, you know, they'll see me in the halls and go, hey, Wonder Woman, what's up? And I'm like, "Mm, I don't hate this. I kind of love it.
3: (laughs) Kristen works at SAP SuccessFactors, where she helps companies shift away from legacy HR systems toward human-centric solutions. And she's experiencing exactly what she advocates for, a workplace that's centered on people and supporting their needs.
0: They were sending my family meals and sending my kids activities because they knew that I couldn't get up and play superheroes. I'm so grateful for this company and how they support me with this disease and being a a professional cancer patient. Because I'm at the doctor all the time.
3: Encouraged by her husband, Kristen decided to start a podcast, she called it making the breast of it.
0: She said, so many men and women don't know about these complementary therapies and saving your hair. It made such a difference for us. Why don't you share this with the world? And I thought, who the heck wants to listen to me on the microphone? And here we are two years in. We have all of these listeners all over the world. I think we're in 84 countries now. I get so many emails from women who are towards the end of their life and the cancer has taken over and it's amazing to hear them tell me how the show really helped them through their darkest days because they know their days are numbered and I'm so honored to have those listeners and know that they're cheering me on because I'm doing the same for them behind the microphone.
3: It's important to be able to support your employees when they need it most. To learn more about the human experience management solutions from SAP SuccessFactors, head to sap.com HR. As the pandemic raged in full force, I kept seeing calls for more empathy at work. People wanted empathy from their coworkers, their clients, their bosses, and especially their bosses' bosses. Whenever people talk about mental health at work, empathy is a big theme. But there's a psychologist at the University of Toronto who's challenged us to rethink our responses to empathy. His name is Paul Bloom, and his work suggests that if we're not careful, empathy can lead us astray.
4: Empathy is the power to figure out what other people are thinking and feeling, putting yourself in another person's shoes. So psychologists make a distinction between cognitive empathy and emotional empathy. Cognitive empathy is understanding what another person thinks or what another person feels. And emotional empathy is feeling it. So if I know you're anxious and I say, oh, this guy's anxious, that's cognitive empathy. If I feel your anxiety and become anxious with you, that's emotional empathy.
3: So, Paul, we, we've never met before, but by all accounts, you seem to be a caring person. Why are you against emotional empathy then?
4: Yeah, it's, Twitter has had its opinion about that, too. You write a book against empathy. It's like writing a book against kittens. Um, <laughs> I'm not a monster. I'm a guy who's very interested as individually and also as a scientist in how we could be uh, moral, how we could be good people.
3: Paul finds that we need to be thoughtful about how we handle emotional empathy because it can lead us into a few traps that actually prevent us from caring about others. The first trap is that we tend to feel empathy for individuals, not groups.
4: There's study after study finding very weirdly that we care more about the one than about the 10 or about the 100. And it's very human, but at least to terrible policies
3: and terrible choices A manager who empathizes with one employee's stress is at risk for giving him time off, but not extending the same benefits to the rest of the team, let alone to other teams. Which leads us to the second trap. Empathy is biased. It's terribly biased.
4: It's much easier for me to become empathic for you, a guy who looks a lot like me and has a similar job than me and speaks my language and and maybe has similar background, than for me to feel empathy for someone whose skin is of a different color or lives in a faraway land, or who I'm frightened of. And when we make decisions based on empathy, we find ourselves diverting our care and our love to people a lot like us.
3: And the third trap is that empathy can drain us.
4: There are studies suggesting that nurses who are higher empathy
3: spend less time with their patients. Feeling another person's pain can be overwhelming. We get so overloaded that we end up focusing on managing our own emotions, Instead of showing care to others.
4: Doctors and nurses work with people who are in real pain and they talk about how their empathy gets in the way and that they would like to have less of that.
3: That also reminds me of the longstanding, <laughs> I think, misnomer that you know in healthcare especially, people feel compassion fatigue. And my yeah. read of the evidence there is that it's not showing compassion that exhausts us and drains us. It's empathic distress. It's feeling concern for a person and being unable to help them or unable to alleviate their pain that really hurts us.
4: You're exactly right. The neuroscientist, Tanya Singer, done some lovely work distinguishing exactly the things you're talking about, distinguishing compassion, like love, caring, and empathy, which leads to empathic distress. And study after study, she finds compassion invigorates you, makes you a better helper, makes you more caring. Empathy leads to distress, which brings you down.
3: What we need more than empathy is compassion. In his research, Paul finds that you don't have to feel other people's feelings to care about their feelings. Regardless of how much empathy you feel for someone else's pain, the question is whether you respond by taking action to alleviate their pain. That's compassion.
4: And I've come to be persuaded that the best way to do good in the world, both at an individual level and also at a more global level, is to care a lot about people, to think rationally about about how how to do good, and I call it rational compassion.
3: Even before COVID, research revealed that employees expected their managers to care about their emotional well-being, to listen, show concern, and offer help. Those expectations have only risen over the past year. Compassion is no longer above and beyond. It's an organizational imperative for attracting and retaining talented people. But I know some leaders who are still struggling to warm up to the idea of compassion at work.
1: The big fear is if we start doing all this nicey-nice, sort of back-rubbing, cozying up, which is how people may construe compassion, then we're going to be taken advantage of Sally Maitlis
3: is an organizational behavior professor at Oxford and a therapist. One of her specialties is compassion at work, and she finds that many managers are afraid of the idea.
1: And the whole place is going to go to hell because what about people's performance? You know, in our organization, we need to get things done. And if we're sitting around, you know, singing Kumbaya and holding people's hands, how is that going to help anything?
3: Compassion is not about singing Kumbaya. It's more than just showing warmth. It takes competence, too.
1: Compassion competence consists of a sort of emergent pattern of collective noticing in this generous way, collective feeling and collective acting to alleviate someone's suffering, and to do this in a a customized way. I would start by showing it to my team and by encouraging in my team people to listen to each other, to notice when someone's suffering, to interpret that suffering generously, and to bring to a conversation, how could we help this person? But it isn't easy. It requires having your emotional antenna up,
3: being attuned to other people's mental health, not just their performance or productivity. In cultures that lack compassion, a few people end up carrying that burden. Researchers call them toxin handlers.
1: And they become the sounding board and the, the ear for people who are really struggling and in distress. And people always feel better when they've spent time with the toxin handler because that, that person creates a holding space for them and sort of contains the difficult emotions and takes actions to try to actually alleviate what's causing the, the suffering.
3: But this isn't sustainable for those individuals or for the organization.
1: Over time, that toxin handler gets sort of filled with the toxicity themselves, they can end up uh, burning out or really becoming quite ill with all that they're absorbing. And they're not a substitute for really weaving into the roles and the routines and the culture of an organization ways of responding more constructively to people's suffering.
3: Yes, please. So we need to think about this as an organizational culture problem, not just uh, we're going to parachute in a person who's going to solve it all.
1: Start by making it really clear that this is what you believe in. We, we believe in looking after our employees, and we believe that, that people's mental health and people's humanity is really of central importance here. So what does a compassionate
3: organization look like? At the policy level, I'd love to see every workplace offer paid time off for mental health the same way it exists for physical health. They should cover support for mental health care the same way they pay medical bills. But policy is not enough because compassion is about action.
1: Compassion can be very small acts that can make an enormous difference to somebody.
3: For several months, we've scoured the globe for examples of compassionate organizations. We've talked to leaders who are celebrated for unusual compassion and workplaces that have won awards for extraordinary compassion. But most of what we heard was surprisingly ordinary. The basics of compassionate work are common sense, but they aren't common practice. In one survey in the spring of 2020, over a third of employees said that not a single person at their company had even asked them how they were doing since the pandemic had started. So what does everyday compassion look like at work? It's about noticing and responding to pain. It's all the workplaces that gave people Fridays off to recharge and spend time with loved ones. It's the organizations that offered employees free private counseling sessions. It's the CEO who was so worried about burnout that he invited all of his employees, over 3,500 people, to email their vacation plans to him. It's the manager I heard about recently who said, It's okay to call in sick. It's okay to call in sad too. Sad days, not just sick days. Yes! And it's the leader I heard about in the spring of 2020, who is working to build a culture of compassion inside the Canadian government.
5: My name is Darlene Upton, and I'm the vice president of Protected Area Establishment and Conservation with Parks Canada. We're working with nature, for nature, for people, connecting Canadians to nature.
3: How many people do you manage?
5: Uh, I. I think there's about 200 on the team now, but the organization as a whole is about probably around 7,000. So interact with a lot of people.
3: As lockdowns extended from a few days to indefinite, Darlene started to worry about mental health on her team.
5: You always have a boundary between kind of work and home. And the pandemic kind of blew that up. So all of a sudden, I could see who had kids at home You could see right into people's bedrooms in some cases, and and you could see people struggling.
3: You probably felt that too. Trying to keep up with every video meeting. Working on site and worrying about protecting yourself and your loved ones from COVID. Navigating a new virtual workflow while confronting the uncertainty of the pandemic. Taking care of older parents or younger kids. Darlene didn't want her team to feel isolated or overwhelmed she wanted to send a message of compassion. One day, she was scrolling on social media when she stumbled across a list of principles for working remotely during COVID. They were created by Jonathan Lundberg, an engineering director in Ireland.
5: The first one that I really liked that caught my eye is that you are not working from home, you are at home during a crisis trying to work.
3: Another was your personal physical, mental, and emotional health is far more important than anything else right now.
5: The other one I really liked is that you should not try and compensate for lost productivity by working longer hours. Uh, I think there was a sense that people are going to have to work, you know, forever to make up for dealing with their family or their kids or whatever happened to be going on in their lives. So that idea of being more flexible and how we treated people and not expecting people to make up all the time, like till midnight or, or whatever, like people still needed a life. And then there were two more that kind of a bit later on in the pandemic, seemed to resonate a lot. And that was, you'll be kind to yourself and not judge how you were coping based on how you see others coping. And you will be kind to others and not judge how they are coping based on how you are coping.
3: And the last principle said, your team's success will not be measured the same way it was when things were normal.
5: I think these principles start you from a place of of trust. You trust your employees are working and they're productive. Because I find myself at times, you know, you're under pressure and you've got deadlines and things like that. There are times where, you know, I want to kind of go, where is it? And then you kind of stop yourself and go, well, wait a second, especially now, like you, you really don't know what people are dealing with necessarily.
3: So Darlene shared the principles with her team of 200 and then they went viral. First across the Canadian government and then around the world. The principles helped pave the way for Darlene to create a more compassionate workplace when her team needed it most.
5: They resonated with me. They really resonated with people. I would say, like, some people got a bit of comfort knowing that management would kind of share something like that.
3: That's the first step for building a culture of compassion. You make it legitimate to share struggles. It's what DeMar did in his NBA team. And it's what Darlene did at Parks Canada.
5: So I think the principles gave those people working in offices a little bit of legitimacy that their life was not, like, normal and rosy as well.
3: Her team realized their struggles mattered to leaders and slowly gained the confidence to share how they were coping with remote work and all the stress of COVID. Soon, Darlene was leading weekly calls with her team and asking them how they were all doing.
5: I used to ask around as to who was doing some neat things to cope with the pandemic. So one of the team members, her and her husband uh, were big, avid hikers and climbers. So they had developed this system. They had measured this, their staircase going down to the basement. And they started tracking how much they were going up and down it and calculating their the elevation gains that they were doing. <laughs> and then they would attach that, you know, they would liken that to like a mountain peak in a national park. And they would pretend they were climbing it. And once they hit the elevation, they would take a photo with the family and post a picture on the wall and head (laughs) for the next peak. So, you know, after this call, everybody shared all the positive stuff. I thought it was great.
3: But for the rest of the team members listening to the story, it was not great at all. It's good to open up the conversation about struggle. But you have to be careful about the tone you set when you do it. Darlene's team call was veering dangerously toward toxic positivity the pressure to be upbeat and enthusiastic at all times.
5: A couple days later, I started hearing uh, people saying that they actually felt worse after the call, not the intention. So I had, on the, on the next call, I said, you know, I thanked again everybody that had shared what they were doing. But I acknowledged that I had heard that some people uh, were not feeling like they were coping as well. And and as a result of that call, they felt a little bit worse about themselves. People were judging themselves based on how others were were coping. And that just opened the floodgates up. It was a very, very emotional call. There were people in tears saying they were lonely, sharing some of their struggles. Some people saying like, I don't have the energy to bake sourdough or climb mountains, I'm exhausted.
3: This is where Darlene took a second step toward building a culture of compassion. She challenged toxic positivity by setting up a call for people to be candid about their struggles at work. In your team, that might be dedicating a portion of your weekly huddle to emotional support or scheduling a monthly team check-in to see how people are doing. This opens the door for what's called emotional acknowledgement. It's the simple act of noticing and mentioning another person's emotional state, and research reveals that it builds trust. It starts with paying attention when a coworker's responsiveness dips or an employee's mood lags. For example, let's say your colleague was frowning during a meeting that went poorly. Instead of just commenting on the situation, that meeting was a dud. You can acknowledge the emotion itself by saying, you seemed upset during the meeting. How are you doing? i found in my research that making space for compassion doesn't just benefit the people who receive it. It also fosters feelings of pride and gratitude in people who show it. They appreciate the opportunity to give support to others. And Sally finds that the benefits extend even further.
1: And we also know that people who hear about compassion organizations or who witness compassion also feel better, feel more loyal, more um, committed to their organization. So just that in itself, I think, is a very joyful set of findings.
3: A final step for building a culture of compassion is for leaders to show their own vulnerability. When leaders model that it's okay to struggle, that makes it easier for others to ask for help, which was something Darlene got more comfortable doing.
5: For me, finding the balance of sharing enough but not too much, like sharing enough so people Know you're real and maybe get a sense of it's okay to have a down day. The boss has a down day. And also trying to be inspirational in a sense as
3: well. It's so powerful that you said it's okay to have a down day, which is something that a lot of leaders don't feel they have the luxury to do. What emotions did you share with your team?
5: I remember coming back at Christmas and I thought Christmas was going to be such a great break. And I came back angry. Like it was such a weird feeling. It was like this anger at being in this state of like, not happiness, you know, nothing to be particularly sad about, but also nothing to be super joyous about either that sort of just existence. And and so I've seen that with the team.
3: Well, I imagine that's a big part of why those principles you shared were so resonant for people is you were saying, look, all of these things that are incredibly difficult, they're normal, they're human. You don't have to be completely invulnerable or invincible to them.
5: I would say you've got to show a little vulnerability. You need to be able to sort of create a space where people can feel safe enough to kind of share how they're feeling and not be judged for it, but also know that the the result of doing that is actually going to be support, is that people will... Colleagues may step in and say, hey, I got your back. Or, you know, the boss may say, okay, let's find another way to get this done.
3: As people grapple with mental health challenges, we need more managers giving permission to call in sad, not just sick. We need more workplaces to be flexible and support mental health. We need more leaders to show that it's okay not to be okay all the time. I hope these moments don't end with the pandemic. We all have struggles and pretending they don't exist doesn't help people or organizations. Normalizing struggle reveals our humanity and responding with care elevates our humanity. Work Life is hosted by me, Adam Grant. The show is produced by Ted with Transmitter Media. Our team includes Colin Helms, Greta Cohn, Dan O'Donnell, Joanne DeLuna, Grace Rubenstein, Michelle Quint, Banban Ban Cheng, and Anna Phelan. This episode was produced by Camille Peterson and Constanza Gallardo. Our show is mixed by Rick Kwan. Our fact checker is Paul Durbin. Original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. Ad stories produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Heartfelt gratitude this season to Amma Adidako, Nicole Bodie, Valentina Bohanini, Sammy Case, Micah Ames, Nicole Edine, Will Hennessy, Sarah Lee, Jen Mikalski, Alex Siegel, Sarah Jane Souther, and Emma Taubner. Special thanks to our sponsors LinkedIn, Logitech, Morgan Stanley, SAP, and Verizon. Gratitude to the following researchers Nancy Rothbard and Stephanie Wilk on mood and performance, Michael Ford and colleagues on well being and performance. Seagal Barstade on emotional contagion, Gary Johns on presenteeism, Nancy Eisenberg, Andy Malinsky, and Joshua Margolis on emotional overload, Ginka Togel and colleagues on emotion helping, Elisa Yu and colleagues on emotional acknowledgement, and Jane Dutton, Monica Warline, Jacoba Lilius, Jason Kanov, and Peter Frost on Compassion at Work. I've been waiting for you to return to the dunk contest. What would it take?
2: (laughs) Uh, It would take uh, a time machine for me to be 25 years old to to do the dunk contest again.